Okay, well, thank you uh, very much to, uh, to Steve and Ian and uh, Ian Bretman for, uh, for being part of this and for inviting me to come. It's a great pleasure to be here, and thank you for fighting your way through the rain to be, uh, to be with us today. Um, there's a couple of things I want to cover. There's a sort of um, scene setting and sort of factual part of this to, to set up uh, fair trade certification. And then there's some, uh, some insights into research that we have been doing, particularly looking at the, the flow label, one of the certification labels for fair trade um, in a kind of institutional context. And uh, the context that we're, I can walk in front of here, can I? The context that we're setting it in <coughs> is, um, is as, as an object that allows different institutional logics to talk to each other. So hence the bad cricketing pun, you know, that the fair trade label may well be a boundary spanning object, but how far is it functioning successfully as that uh, in terms of all the parties involved in fair trade. Now let's, let's, let's maybe just check first of all, so I don't bore you too much, what's the level of knowledge about fair trade? Hands up if you know a fair bit about fair trade certification. I'm not going to pick on you. Hands up if you do. Okay, so the first 10 minutes is going to be pretty dull for you, forgive me, but I'll, I'll move fairly quickly just to set the scene and then uh, try to spend a bit longer on some actual research and give you some, uh, some examples of data we've collected around uh, these boundary spanning issues. Let's see if this works. So fair trade. So, um, so what is it? Well, this is the sort of now agreed <coughs> definition used by most of the fair trade organizations. I won't read it all to you, but the, the colored uh, wording uh, is to suggest to you that, that, at least in my analysis, there are kind of three uh, discourses or, or, or elements within the fair trade definition, and they're separated here by colors. So there's a, set, there's a set of issues around partnership, dialogue, transparency, respect, and so on. And these are, I think, sort of supply chain process issues. Uh, there's a set of issues around development and trade and sustainability, which would be the sort of economic uh, rationale for fair trade. And then there's the sort of uh, advocacy and political dimension about awareness raising, rights, marginalization, empowerment, if you will, campaigning. So even just in the, in the sort of standard definition, you've got an interesting set of potentially contradictory logics going on here, you know, economic development, political change and empowerment, something to do with respect and partnershiping. So, so even just within the fair trade movement itself, I think there's, a, there's a, often a, a, you know, a real tension in, in, in managing these different agendas. Um, and I'll suggest to you in a little while that in engaging with corporations and mainstream retailers, uh, some of those contradictions are also present and need to be managed. Um, and I think the label is a way of helping that process be managed, as I'll come to later. Um, so, you know, what is it? Well, it's a, an innovative development model, fair trade. So it's uh, often described as market-driven ethical, con ethical consumption. So it's a, it's a development model that locates itself in a kind of conventional market space. It's not aid. It's about consumers wanting to purchase goods, which then, through the fair trade model, uh, pass more value back to the producer, typically. Uh, it's also been seen as, as a way of, um, you know, along with another set of other sort of uh, consumer-facing agendas, organics, for example, as being a way of making consumption a political choice. You know, when you buy a product, you make a, you vote for something, um, which we can see as good or bad. We can have different positions on, you know, is that disempowering political processes? Is that, you know, in what senses is this democratic or accountable? On the other hand, we could say this is interesting. Um, new supply chain model, a lot, of, a lot about fair trade is indeed to do with, I think, reconnection and, and sort of uh, countering, you know, Marx's commodity fetishism, the notion of, you know, separation of production and consumption. Fair trade really reconnects those elements uh, in, in really uh, an effective way for consumers. And it has these kind of two elements of action, um, you know, the doing stuff, 
the, the opening markets, the increasing sales for producers, and an advocacy trade justice agenda. And of course, right, it's a good story. So here's, you know, Harry Potter 7 comes out today, I think. Um, so Emma Watson works with PeopleTree that I'm on the board of. Um, and part of the reason Emma worked with PeopleTree was not just, uh, you know, uh, a commitment to, uh, to, to trade justice, although that was certainly there, but it's a good story, right? Um, so in terms of the action side of what fair trade does, and again, forgive me, many of you will probably know all of this, so we can move pretty quickly over this. You know, what does it actually do? Well, at the core of it, there's a notion of a fair price. Typically, that's set as a, as a floor price, you know, a, a, an agreed minimum price for, um, for a product, um, normally a sort of commodity food product, but that's expanding slightly. Um, Long-term contracts, very important for, um, for smoothing out kind of income for the poor, you know, the knowledge that they will have, you know, a, a contract over several years, not just the man from Del Monte coming in and saying yes or no on a season-by-season -season basis. That's very important for capacity building. Uh, often prepayment and advance payment, so not kind of 30 days plus after you receive the goods you get paid. Often up to 50% of an order um, will be paid in advance to, again, allow the, the, the poor producers to smooth out their income. There's typically minimum la labour standards, um, often sometimes controversial rules about no child labour, and indeed sometimes rules which are clearly flaunted in reality, but um, the, there are standards there. Um, technical assistance to help producers um, increase the quality of what they do, uh, or for example to move into organic produce because there's higher value there. Uh, and, and very often, not in every case, but in most cases, a really important additional premium. So not only do you pay a higher floor price and all the other conditions, but you'll typically, um, on top of that, add another 10% into the, uh, or up to 10% into the contract you strike with a producer as a kind of development premium that uh, is typically organized by um, a sort of cooperative or democratically appointed uh, community group who will decide how to spend that money on something to develop the community. Um, and sort of marketing and, and technical assistance too. So a whole package of things it's important to understand beyond just the price question, though the minimum price is obviously absolutely critical. You can't really see this, but, but maybe just look at the bottom. This is just UK sales. You can see up to sort of 800 uh, million sterling uh, in 2009. Ian could probably tell us how we're doing in 2010 this year, but I'm sure growth is continuing. I'm just really double digit, double digit plus, you know, in some cases, uh, growth over the period in the UK. I mean, so a huge uh, uh, growth and a very, you know, the reason mainstream retailers are interested in this, this category is because of the growth rates, really. So, you know, it has been successful uh, by the simple definition of, of sales and increased sales. Um, at the global level, something like, you know, 2.2 billion in 2009 in sales. Now, I'll explain to you in a minute, that's certified sales. Now, fair trade actually consists of two wings, the, the certified, flow certified um, products and those that are not certified in the same way. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the label that we know and love dominates the market, as you can see. And that was about over two billion. Also, it shows you how important the UK market is. If you think the UK market was 800 million out of 2.2 billion, very important. Uh, you know, it's engaging with 60 million producers, 60 countries, you can see the figures there. So. Um, you know, in terms of global trade, right, let's face it, this is a tiny, tiny proportion. Let's not get carried away. But in and of itself, it's a significant intervention in a lot of producers' lives um, and I think has an important signaling quality as well across supply chains generally. 
a bit a major phenomenon recently uh, over the last few years, and this you know will take us where I want us to go in a few minutes in terms of considering relationships with mainstream retailers. You know the mainstreaming agenda of fair trade has been critical for its growth, uh, and an important part of that has been the development of the certified label. So mainstream players, Marks and Spencer's, Tate and Lyle, Cadbury's, even though they've been taken over by Kraft, allegedly are still you know going to follow their commitment to uh, to, uh, to to sign up to a huge amount of additional fair trade cocoa in their chocolate. Um, even Nestle, uh, uh, which, which is, is it the two finger or four finger? For some reason, only one of the Kit Kats Nestle does. I don't know why, but anyway. Four finger Kit Kat, I don't know if that's good or bad, but, but Nestle has a commitment too. So, so a lot of corporations are signing up. The reason they're signing up, let's be honest, is, 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 is fundamentally because of that huge sales growth we saw earlier. So it's an attractive, fast growing seg uh, sector and segment. Um, and this has helped the uh, overall fair trade market grow very fast, but we may want to pause and think of what implications mainstreaming with uh, corporations may have. Um, the other side, I just mentioned the two things they do, the action, the advocacy side. Um, there's an advocacy office associated with, um, with a certification uh, organization in Europe, and they sort of campaign for trade justice issues and, uh, and work within the European Union, political structures, and so on. So there is a kind of active advocacy um, office. And of course, at the grassroots level, there's an enormous amount of advocacy still goes on in political change. Many fair traders are located in churches or other kinds of environments where there are strong sort of traditions of trade justice or social justice. So um, this kind of still carries on. But you know, in and out of the market, fair trade sort of wants to have it both ways. It wants to be engaging with markets to raise sales, but it wants to be able to critique markets and critique supply chains. And you know, this is a hard balance. Some people would say at the more extreme level, the fair trade actually is doing nothing more than privatizing development. We could discuss that later. So, here, so here's the kind of just the basic facts. Essentially, there are two wings to the fair trade movement, as I just mentioned. There's the uh, the labelling uh, certified label that we know so well up there, um, which is under the Fair Trade Labelling Organisations International, shortened to Flow. Um, I'll say a bit more about them in a moment, and that's the stuff you know from the supermarkets: their coffee, the tea, the cotton, um, bananas, so on, and organizations like Cafe Direct and the Day Chocolate Company. On the other side, perhaps less well known, is the World Fair Trade Organization, or WFTO, which typically supports the sort of non-commodity food fair trade producers, so people doing textiles. I mean, this is a people tree shirt, so this would be under WFTO sort of wing, if you will, because there is no, as yet, although this is just, there are questions about this at the moment, broadly speaking, there's no label for textiles. Uh, people like Tradecraft and so on. And there's a, the, the, there are, however, certification and labelling initiatives under WFTO that I'll come to in a minute, and one of them is known as the Sustainable Fair Trade Management System. We'll come back to that. So what do these two people do? Well, um, Flow, the Fair Trade Labelling Organisations International, this is the, the, the umbrella organisation within which the UK labelling initiative sits, um, has its roots in social movements looking at uh, developing alternative trade models. Um, and the first label initiative was in uh, Holland, Max Havelaar in 1988. A number of independent labels began to emerge around the world and they were brought together in, under, in an umbrella organization in 1997 when Flow was established that pulled together today 
uh, 24 different organizations um, representing different initiatives and uh, groups around the world under the, broadly speaking, the label we know from coffee, tea, and so on in this country. So what does it do? It sets standards, so uh, you know, specific standards, price standards, labor standards per product. So for coffee, they will look different from tea, they will look different to cotton and so on. But they are, they are clear and tight standards. Uh, for a period, it also, flow also enforced the standards, so it would audit them and go out and check. Um, but in 2004, a separate organization, Flow Certification or Flow Cert, was spun out of Flow to be, a, as it were, a more independent third-party auditor. So now the, the main Flow organization sets the standards, but Flow Cert, as it were, enforces them or at least checks them or sets up audit systems. So it's a standard-based model. It's uh, typically commodity products. It has a third-party audit wing in it, Flow Cert. And it has a fee system, so it has a way of, the way it earns its income is to charge producers and to charge people who put the label on the product. Now this in itself is quite controversial perhaps because what it typically doesn't charge a fee to are the retailers. So Tesco, Sainsbury, Marks and Spencers will not typically pay anything um, in terms of Flo's business model for the privilege of having the label. That will have been put on by a wholesaler who will have to pay a fee and the producers themselves. And here are some of the fee regime, so not actually necessarily small amounts of money. But to be fair to flow, I mean, it needed a business model. It had to find a way to fund itself over time to be sustainable, and this was its model. You can't really see this, so, but anyway, this is just to say to you, here are, here's the list of current products that, are, that, that have flow standards. <clears throat> so there's you know, a number, but not thousands. And one of the reasons that there aren't thousands is it takes a lot of time to establish you know, what are appropriate standards through a period of discussion with producers um, and uh, you know, looking at local economic conditions and the rest of it you know, is, a, is a costly and time-consuming process. So uh, one of the frustrations that I know retailers often feel is how long it takes for a standard to develop. Uh, I remember you know, talking to um, you know, the guys who, who set up uh, Tesco's own label, Fair Trade Products, many years ago when they were doing this, and they were saying, you know, you know we would love to do you know, fair trade shrimps or something, but then we go to, to Flow and they say, that's great, we'll come back to you in 18 months, we'll give you a stand, and it's like, well, you know, we don't, that's not how we operate in Tesco. We want something, we want it in three weeks, right? And so there's a frustration with how long it takes to form standards, but of course the flip side is that allows them to hopefully be better standards and more rigorous standards. Um, so just an example, in coffee, uh, the standards would set uh, $1.25 per pound for, for, for the best coffee, for Arabica coffee that's washed. Uh, you can get an organic premium on top of that. Um, and the fair trade premium is typically 10 cents per pound. And there are other you know, issues that cover what we discussed earlier about the type of standard. So some rules about use of agrochemicals, um, the um, prepayment, and so on. So very specific standard set, just as an example. You know, does, it, does this make a difference? Well, yes, it does. If you look at, this is only 2007, but if you look at the, um, here's the fair trade mi minimum price. Now, I should say that when the market price, the spot price goes above the minimum, the fair trade buyers pay the higher price. So it's a, it's a safety net price, right? So what this line demonstrates to you is how the fair trade price has fluctuated against the, uh, the spot price. And of course, you can see you know, points like here, just what a difference that would make for a producer in terms of their income, um, particularly 
uh, in terms of a consistency of income. So being able to plan ahead in terms of your planting and your, you know, your investment in your community and your family, knowing you'll have a secure income. So does it make a difference? Yes, it does. And this is just an example of, uh, of the bad coffee of robusta coffee, another example. And you can see very... Now, it's not always as clear as this, right? So if you look at uh, things like cocoa at the moment, I don't know exactly at the moment, but historically over the last few months, um, there's been a, uh, uh, effectively a shortage of cocoa compared with world demand, and cocoa prices have been going up very high, and in a sense, the f so the fair trade floor price for cocoa has become kind of meaningless because the market price is very high um, for everybody. But of course, as I said, the fair trade buyers pay the higher price. So it depends product by product. One interesting sideline of flow certification is they started certifying things that are not just products, places. So um, we now have fair trade towns, fair trade places of worship, fair trade universities and colleges. We should be shamed by the fact that Oxford Brooks was the first fair trade university and the University of Oxford is still not a fair trade university, although some of our colleges are fair trade certified at the uh, college level. So an interesting sort of additional spin-off was to think about how standards could be set for places to support fair trade. So typically the standards are around you know, the amount of fair trade a, a town or an organization buys and different levels of commitment. And in fact, this was a response to, to, to advocates and, and, and sort of um, uh, grassroots movements. Uh, the Garstang in Lancashire, a little market town in Lancashire, decided it would declare itself the world, world's first fair trade town without actually asking Flo if it could. And Flo had to go through this kind of reverse engineering process of going, well, um, uh, okay, what would that look like? We'll set some standards. Oh, you've passed them, great. <laughs> now you can be the world's first, and sort of standards developed in that rather organic way. So the other side of this is, is the World Fair Trade Organization. And um, as I say, this is typically for the sort of crafts, textiles, sculptures, woodwork, all the stuff that doesn't, isn't a commodity and it's not so easy to define a single set of standards for. Um, but they do have a couple of, uh, of, of certification models. One is a fair trade organization label they developed. So this is not a product label, it's an organization label for those organizations that work within the WFTO system. And it has a kind of principles-based approach. Um, they, did, they typically focus on, um, not exclusively, but often producers that work in organi organizations that work in countries that do not have a labeling initiative. So it's not even possible to, um, to get a fair trade label, label even if you wanted it. Um, but this system is much looser. It's typically self-monitored or peer-monitored. It's based on principles rather than really hard standards. Um, uh, it's, and there's no kind of fee system either. There's no third party um, auditor who has to be sustainable over time. Um, and the second, so the Fair Trade Organization label has been around for a while. It, it's um, it's a, a sort of um, trade-based, it's a sort of business-to-business -business label. Um, but they're now trying to develop the Sustainable Fair Trade Management System, which is a sort of um, something closer to, a, to a, a, a flow standard, but still based at the organization rather than the product level. So there's a lot of hope within WFTO that this may have traction. Because what the organizations in this sector have seen, of course, is that those people who get the flow label, the coffee producers, the cocoa producers, have seen their sales go like that, whereas the textile producers and the craft producers within fair trade have not seen the same growth. So there's a great deal of interest in developing labels. Here are the 10 standards that WFTO sets, and you can see the areas they're covering, um, but they're kind of principle-based. They're not so... Uh, 
um, specific as a particular price for per pound of something or anything like that. They're more in the spirit of, so this is their fair price statement, and I won't read it to you, but you know, it says all the things you would expect. It's a mutually agreed price to dialogue and participation. You know, it has all the right um, cues for this to feel like it's fair trade to us. But in the end, it's not enforced by any kind of audit system. So it's more of a principles-based approach. Does this stuff work? Well, this is just a bit of data from, uh, from a survey that Fair Trade Foundation, sorry, that Flo um, and the Fair Trade Foundation had commissioned. And it looks like this stuff is effective. So asking, um, don't worry yourself about the two different years. It's just that the, the data they used was, was longitudinal over two, two surveys. Um, you know, do people think that third-party certification is good? Yes, they do, overwhelmingly. Um, would they pay more for certified products? Yeah, a majority would. This kind of group over here, they pay 5% more, 10%, 20%. So something just over 50% would absolutely pay more, and about half wouldn't, but you know, that's still, I think, significant. Of course, whether they do actually pay more is another question. It's that thing about, you know, you ask people, is, you know, is murder bad? And everyone says yes, right? They're still murderers. Um, we talked, survey looked at um, recognition, I suppose, of um, labeling and the fair trade mark came out very high in terms of spontaneous mentions of labels people had seen in the survey group, um, you know, way ahead of organic and others down here. Um, so that's, you know, very encouraging for fair trade. It's got high levels of visibility. Um, people seem to understand what it means when they're asked what does fair trade certification mean. Uh, people get the point that it's you know, first and foremost about um, improving living standards through better pricing and compensation. People are, seem to be convinced that the fair trade standards are rigorous um, in terms of the label and the certification system, and that seems to translate into quite high levels, well, very high levels of trust. So again, this is all very good news. So it, so it would suggest from the consumer survey that um, the label is working very well, and the exponential growth in sales would seem to support that. So there's, there's, I think, to me, I'm very happy to conclude that the, the, the development of the flow certification label um, you know, has been instrumental in growing this marketplace and increasing trust and awareness, and there's no question of that. And so, so in terms of the, the high-level action of fair trade, the, the, the first um, priority to increase income to producers, it seems to be very effective. This is just a curiosity to me. I just put this in because people asked, were asked about the awareness of brands as fair trade, right? And you look at, you know, Cafe Direct down here, it's kind of very low awareness, even though they're a pure fair trade brand. Most people think of the co-op when they think of fair trade, which may be something to do with their, ad, their advertising campaign, perhaps. Okay, so um, I've probably only got about 15 or 20 minutes, so we, I'll jump around these slides a bit and, uh, and try not to bore you with the, too much of the detail of the research project we're doing, but maybe just give you a flavour of some parts of it. So um, having set the context, you know, that the Flow label, I think, has been successful in its fundamental objective to raise awareness and increase sales, um, we were interested in trying to understand how far the Flow label enabled... Uh, effective relationships to be built between mainstream corporations and, and the fair trade movement, if you like. You know, what were the, you know, how do those interfaces work is really what we wanted to understand. So 
we locate this work within a tradition of neo-institutional kind of sociological history, you know, um, uh, analysis of organizations, a kind of interpretive approach, um, and therefore it's, it's entirely qualitative, so there's some qualitative interviewing and so on. So the theory behind the paper and the research we're doing touches on a number of different bunches of theory. There's a whole uh, set of literatures that has been discussed in this, in this seminar series, I'm sure. I haven't been to every seminar, I'm, I, I'm sorry to admit, about the theoretical uh, basis for standard setting. Um, particularly, we were interested in the literature that looks at institutional change and reinstitutionalization. So what, if you look at this literature, um, what it tends to say is that when you, know, when you have competing logics, so when you have different institutional logics uh, that are, in some senses, banging up against each other, you typically get a period of kind of conflict and then a period of resolution and a kind of new consensus emerging. What we thought we could see in fair trade is not that process. We thought we could see different institutional logics. I'll say a bit more about what I mean about that in a minute. Um, that somehow negotiate with each other without actually coming to a new consensus, if you like. So this, if we're right in this, this analysis, that would be contra to most institutional theory, as we read it anyway. And how might this happen? Well, the third sort of pool of literature that we draw on looks at kind of boundary-spanning actors and what are called boundary objects. And this literature, um, often it's a kind of technical literature, so it's looking at how technical information is translated across different groups of actors, um, identifies, you know, uh, technological um, objects, texts, discourses that allow a kind of discussion across different logics. This is, this is getting too much, bear with me. We'll have some examples a little bit later. So our key question then was, you know, how, can, how is it possible that contested logics, so we've got, you know, a, a, a very conventional, market-driven, you could say neoclassical model that most mainstream organizations would follow, you know, maximizing return to capital, essentially. How would though, that logic find a point of contact with a fair trade model, which we saw earlier is you know, all about empowerment and advocacy, political change. How do those two logics manage to talk to each other without coming to a new consensus? So how can you have stability across contested logics? That's really where we were aiming to, uh, to, explore, uh, to explore this phenomenon. So um, just briefly about standards and rationales. Well, um, you know, standards are seen as being a solution to a coordination problem, a form of social rule. Um, and one of the controversial aspects of standards, um, the development of standards over the past 30 years has been a move away from kind of public regulatory standards towards private standards. So standards set by private actors, corporations for themselves, sectors, or, um, or, or NGOs or third party social organizations and social movements. So that movement away from public to private, which, um, you know, which we're, we, we're very familiar with now, is, is controversial, it, not least because it loses democratic accountability. But private standards clearly play an increasingly important role in how organizations uh, organize themselves, and we can see a number of different buckets of private standards have emerged. Um, and I suppose we're interested here in the kind of social and environmental standards that have emerged. Private standards are typically voluntary, but they do, of course, have a kind of quasi-mandatory status as you get a sort of normative agreement around how, uh, how particular sectors should behave. So although 
um, private standards are not typically enforceable by any sort of law, they can um, acquire a kind of quasi-regulatory feel if, um, if a kind of sectoral uh, agreement or, or normative sort of model uh, emerges. Um, but they're highly political. Really the, point, the point I would make um, over the next couple of slides is that standard setting is political, it's about power, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't assume it's ever neutral. If you look at the standard setting history over the last 20 years, there are two main classes of people who are driving new standards. There's social movements and third sector organizations, and they've been responsible for you know, stuff around forestry, fishing, and all, and all the rest of it, and the fair trade movement sits in that. But also, um, and some would say as a response to this, firms and multinationals are also engaged in standard setting, voluntary codes of conduct, ethical trading initiatives, and the rest of it. Um, partly as a response, partly as an alternative um, to, to what's happening in, in social movements. So we can see standards and certification as a kind of expression of power and governance and control. There's a, there's a significant literature that thinks of them in those terms. They're a way of uh, you know, controlling organizational behaviors. And that setting and enforcing standards could then therefore be seen as an expression of power. And so you might expect contestation, you might expect therefore, as in any site where power is being expressed, you might expect a conflict between those who are expressing and, 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 and coercing and organizing power and those who are to be organized. And so in the literature around fair trade and other, um, other sort of social environmental labels, there is you know, a lot of anxiety in the, in the analysis, wondering about how the relationship with, with mainstream corporations will be expressed at the level of how standards develop and how they're applied. You know, will we have capture dilution and so on? And there's a, there's a big range of literature that, that explores some of those questions. In terms of ethical standards, well, they can fall within a, a well-established literature that thinks of, um, uh, of standard setting in a kind of sociological context, so the sort of social con construction of quality um, in a kind of interpretive mode uh, clearly is important in understanding ethical standards because ethical, what does ethical mean? In itself, it's always going to be an interpretive um, uh, you know, adjective or, or a set of boundaries. And we should remember that you know, third-party standards, the kind of social movement standards, did originally challenge um, multinational control. They were a critique of standard. I mean, fair trade was an explicit critique of standard supply chain behaviors for retailers and wholesalers. Um, now it's you know, engaging with them. How, does, how do we see that moving forward, and how does that work at the level of transactions and individual relationships? So flow standards were very much Originally, anyway, a reaction, a critique then of, of the trend away from kind of producer control to retailer control. If you look at the history of how supply chain management and global supply chains developed, um, the, the power and control became more and more consolidated with the retailers. You know, this is absolutely, again, Marx's uh, commodity fetishism, really. It's, um, and flow was, you know, and fair trade generally is a reaction against that, saying how do we recapture value and also meaning in the supply chain for producers, not just uh, retailers and consumers. Okay, well you get the point here. So, um, so the second piece then 
was institutional change and just and just I've sketched this out already so I don't need to go through this in detail but just the literature says to us that when you get competing institutional logics they will clash and then they will resolve and there'll be a new consensus what the literature doesn't suggest really is you you can hold competing logics in balance but I you know we really feel that's what we're seeing in fair trade corporate um, negotiations and relationships it's somehow managing to balance these very different perspectives so really, looking at the literature, what we wanted to address was, you know, how, given the, the context of the literature that we, we were working in, how can we imagine the reality of the coexistence of multiple logics across organizational relationships? How can that happen, given the literature tells us that doesn't happen? So, so the way we, we tried the third cluster of, 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 of theory we, that we explored to try to begin to answer this question as I mentioned earlier, was the notion of boundary objects. So this is as described here. You know, artifacts of practice that are agreed and shared by communities yet satisfy the informational requirements of each. So how it, it, it is a set of, uh, uh, of techniques, technologies, discourses that somehow work as a kind of docking mechanism between competing or different, if you will, views of the world. And these boundary objects, according to the literature, which as I mentioned, is largely based in kind of technology and engineering. It's not really used in this institutional context in the way that the, the previous literature I just mentioned is. So we're, you know, we're playing fast and loose with theory here to a degree. We're trying to import some concepts from a different set of traditions into, into this tradition. Um, but it suggests that boundary objects can allow this kind of negotiation across meanings. So we thought that was worth exploring. Okay. So... The proposition then, based on all this kind of theory, blah, 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 is that the flow label, the certification, certification label and the standards that it embodies act as a boundary object in this context. They allow meanings to be translated selectively across um, the partnerships between multinationals and fair trade. Uh, fair trade is a kind of social movement. So somehow we would propose that you can bridge these two contested logics, the kind of neoliberal logic on the, the retailer side, the sort of social movement trade justice logic on the other, not two obvious bedfellows. And it allows, these, the label allows this kind of um, translation. But the question would remain, how stable is that arrangement? Because again, the literature tells us it should be unstable. There should be some kind of clash and then some kind of new consensus based around a new institutional norm. So I've got, only got about five minutes, but I'll just, just dip into just a few, uh, few quotes that we've picked up in the research so far to give you a flavor of what I think is happening. So bear with me if I just jump around a bit in the last five or six minutes I've got. Um, the first thing is talking to, so we, we did a bunch of interviews with fair trade labeling people, uh, fair trade wholesale senior managers and some external consultants who, run, who, who work around the sector. What we didn't do was interview the uh, multinationals, partly because they're, they don't, they're difficult to talk to about these issues and partly because I'd already done some work with them in the past, so I had some previous research that I could draw upon in terms of their perspectives. So look at what people are saying. I mean, this kind of support, so these, these quotes supported, I think, our view that there was something like a boundary object, go, you know, boundary object effects being found here. Different companies respond to different aspects of fair trade. 
So a company that's got a stronger environmental commitment will be interested in environmental standards, blah, blah, blah. So there's selective storytelling. So the certification and standards mechanism via the label um, that means a whole bunch of things to the fair trade movement can be used, interpreted selectively by the retailer to fit their logics and standards and agendas. So it's a selective storytelling. I personally believe the way to move forward is about the story behind the product. So storytelling, narratives, myths. Very strong in the kind of... Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but there were challenges. You know, one of the challenges can be from a marketing perspective that you get you know, a kind of clash. Um, the, the, these things can be, can be sometimes difficult to express in, um, in a marketing campaign. Yeah, let's move on. So, um, so there were also issues about how those values can translate in the quotes. I don't think, a, a very interesting quote from an American labeling initiative here, talking about consumers. So it's not just, uh, we, I mean, we were focusing really on the relationship between MNCs and fair trade organizations. Of course, the consumers are another part of the, of the, um, the institutional context here. And the, the, the thought from at least one labeling initiative was that mainstream consumers care very little about the detail of fair trade. So they want to see the mark again as a kind of, you know, a kind of object that represents a bunch of things that they can interpret around their own personal agenda to feel good about their shopping, to, to express themselves through their consumption, but not necessarily engage with detail. I mean, this was a nice quote. If you, I think it's like if you imagine a plane on the ground and you're looking out of the window of the plane, you can see in great detail everything that's next to you. But when the plane takes off and you're at 30,000 feet, you see everything down below a bit more vaguely. It's not the detail of everything that's going on has changed. You just can't see it clearly. So I think that's the way I see the mainstream consumer, you know, is that they kind of get an impressionistic view. Okay. So let's jump. I just want to jump to, uh, to two final things then. So if... We seem to, the quotes that we, select, that we pulled together seem to suggest there was some boundary spanning going on here through a boundary object that could be seen as a label. So what would those logics look like? You know, what would be the particular, if you like, um, topic areas that were, um, were expressed at the point of discussion around the label? And we came up with three we thought were clearly evident. Um, there was a way of interpreting the economic benefits of the label. So for... Um, for the retailer or the MNC, the economic benefit was about understanding how they could increase sales. So they were happy to talk about the economic value of fair trade in terms of their own agenda about increasing sales. Of course, for the fair traders, economic benefits were about increasing uh, sales for the producers. So both parties could agree about the value of increasing sales, but their interpretation of what that meant was completely different based on their different institutional logics. So you could have a series of discussions around growth and economic, um, e creating more sales that would be interpreted quite differently by both parties at the negotiation, but which could lead to a con concrete transaction. There was a second set of discussions and um, themes around quality and how important uh, high quality was and raising quality was. But again, interpreted very differently. So the quality aspects of the fair trade certification model will be interpreted as a, being, for the retailer, a way, of, a way of driving high margin, hitting the very high-end AB customers, which, of course, we know Fairtrade is positioned as an expensive product, quality lifestyle product. 
But for the fair trade movement, it's about capacity building. Building quality is about allowing the producer to capture more value out of the supply chain. So again, you get a kind of set of discourses around quality that could be interpreted quite differently by the two parties in the negotiation. And finally, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop here to have, so we have time for debate, even though I've got other things I could say, but I'll stop with this because this is the hub of it. Um, there were a set of interesting discussions around sustainability. So for the, for the retailer, you know, sustainability was really about supplier lock-in. It was about saying, you know, if there is a mismatch in supply and demand for cocoa uh, to the, to the, in favor of the producer, it helps us to lock producers into long-term contracts with us so we have stability of supply. So sustainability for the retailer means control supply. For the, uh, for the fair trader, you know, it's much more about consistency of income for the producer and the sustainability of their own economic model on the ground, the farmer or the artisan. So you get, again, a, a disc, you know, if I were to show you all the slides, which I don't have time to, you'd see quotes around this. But you just have to believe me that they're there. You get discussions around sustainability which are clearly interpreted in a very different way by both parties, but allow a discussion to go forward around, around the label. So I think in conclusion, what I would say is that we've, from the work we've done so far, uh, it's a fascinating space, I would say, because I do think in, in the, the fair trade, uh, mainstream retailer interactions, you get an extraordinary, really, uh, scenario where you are indeed in and against the market. Uh, so you want to negotiate with retailers, you want to put as many fair trade products as possible in, into their stores, but at the same time, the movement is predicated on an inherent critique of everything they stand for. Um, and the multiple levels of storytelling seem to indicate that, that, that those interesting complex negotiations go on uh, at, the, at the sort of transactional level. Um, and they are indeed, in some way at least, facilitated by the way that the standards of the label can be interpreted in multiple ways. So the standards and the label serve as this boundary spanning object that allows these multiple interpretations to happen simultaneously at the point of discussion and transaction. Uh, between MNC and Fair Trader, but we should ask ourselves, you know, how stable this is, and uh, you know, we also had a good number of quotes which suggested there are inherent issues and problems which are not solved by um, by the boundary object, if you like, by the certification regime, not least inherent power asymmetries. In the end, a number of people said to us, "This is all fine, but the product you win or lose on the product." Basically, in the end. The buyer will choose to buy what they buy on the quality and the attractiveness of the product, and everything else will fall away in the end if you don't sustain uh, a standard of product that looks uh, comparable with other products they, the buyer could choose uh, in the mainstream head office. So I'll stop there so we can have some, some discussion. Thank you very much.